0: If God wanted you to be a woman, honey, he'd have made you a woman. God don't make mistakes. My mother said this once. You were in there for nine months. You don't think he could have figured it out? Don't you think God looked at everything and said, this is a man and your sister's a woman? We're bright people here. Let's not get confused. So we're made by God. So God has already chose for us. So why are you trying to override God? God.
1: Tony Newman grew up in a devout Christian home in the Deep South, where being gay was a sin, and being transgender, that was just insanity.
0: You have begun to lose your mind. I mean, you've been controlled by the devil, and we're going to have to let you go. If you don't want to get some real serious help and start praying, as I've been praying for 10 years.
1: This is part one of Trans in the Eyes of God. A special series from Inspired. For this series, I'm passing the mic to guest host Reverend David Wynn, a Christian pastor in Fort Worth, Texas. He'll take it from here.
2: Tony identifies as transgender. What does that mean? Well, the sex Tony was assigned at birth, male, doesn't match the gender she identifies with. In her case, Tony knew she was a woman. And for many people, gender isn't binary, just male or female. It can also be both or neither. But for some people of faith, gender is binary, and it's fixed at birth. Ideas based on their tradition's core teachings. It's simply not up for debate. Yet we know that new interpretations are emerging,
3: and more and more trans people are living openly. When somebody decides that the gender that everyone perceives them to be is not their real gender. That's a really deep challenge to a religious tradition.
4: And that's not just something that's specific to niche minority religions. In fact, in many religious traditions, these notions of creation and manness and womanness are central to our understandings of who we are.
2: Less than 1% of the population identifies as transgender. But in recent years, the struggle of living openly as a trans youth or adult has come into greater focus. While the use of public accommodations, like bathrooms, has generated a lot of controversy, less attention has been given to the spiritual lives of transgender individuals. By some counts, more than one-third of religious trans people have left their faith communities out of fear of being rejected, and many of them seek more welcoming places to pray. So those religious institutions that have excluded or ignored transgender people in the past are now grappling with these questions. Do they hold on to traditional conventions or make a space for increasingly visible trans members within their communities? They have to decide whether to change or stay the same. I have a personal stake in all of this because I'm transgender, and I want to meet other trans people of faith who are struggling to square their gender identity with their religious traditions. I want to talk with people from all different backgrounds and beliefs who are asking for new names, new rituals, and new interpretations of scripture. In this series, we're going to be hearing their personal stories, not the institutional doctrine. I'm clearly not neutral here. But I'm not afraid to talk to people who hold different beliefs. I've been doing that my whole life. So let's get back to Toni Newman's story. Growing up, she says she always felt a little different from other kids.
0: I was a really feminine child, highly scholarly, but very skinny, very effeminate, and new at eight or nine. I was out of the box and there was something not right. I just didn't have a name for it. I mean I I, I was born in the sixties. So I mean in the seventies there was just no representation of of transgenders on TV. So I didn't know what it was, but I knew I was different, a bird of a different color.
2: Yeah. I I think I read that you guys were in church a lot when you were a child.
0: hmm uh, I was uh brought up in a two family Christian home. So we attended church. For my 18 years, uh, for about four times a week, Mm -hmm. sometimes five. So I was uh, very much brought up in a a Southern Christian home raised by a a Southern woman and Mm -hmm. a Southern man. Homosexuality was a sin. Mm -hmm. Um, Male to male, female to female love is an abomination before God. So I heard that regularly. Transgenders were never mentioned. Nobody knew what that was. So, you know, that was my religion. So I grew up hearing that frequently. You know, I knew some cousins who were gay but had moved away. And uh, we, we didn't discuss that in my family. That was just, that's just your special cousin. And I'm so sorry for his parents that he... He or she has turned out that way. Thank God that's not in our home. You know, we are praying religious, God-fearing people. We love the Lord. These people didn't go to church. Yeah. They They just ran wild. This is why their children are homosexuals and lesbians, because they were not taught the way of God. And that's what I heard for 18 years. So, you know, when I told them my first step of, after going to Wake Forest, two years as a sophomore, I go home and say, oh, I'm gay. Well, that was kind of a, we know. We've kind of figured that out. And it it, it was a blow. But after 10 years of, of them dealing with me and two years in college, they knew. Yeah, mother of knows. course. Yeah. So they knew that I was, uh, you know, gay. But the transgender thing, to come back 10 years later and say I'm transgender, what are you saying? I thought you were gay. Now you're taking this thing all about hormones and Mm. body reformation and transitioning. You are now in a psychotic break. You have begun to lose your mind. I mean, you've been controlled by the devil as a homosexual. But I said, I'm not a homosexual. I just said that because that's what I knew. But now I know better. And I'm telling you what I am, and they thought you just you, you just lost your mind. This is a psychotic break, and we're going to have to let you go if you don't want to get some real serious help about this and start praying. I've been praying for ten years; it's it's went right. nowhere. Yeah,
2: and had you now you had left the church by then. Um, what, what's your what's yes. your connection uh-huh. or relationship with the church now?
0: Um, I go uh, I go to a church called West Angeles in Los Angeles. Uh, Sometimes I go to the City of Refuge in Oakland. I pray. I'm a worshiper. I love the Lord. I'm more of a spiritualist, whether it's a gay church, a regular black church. Um, I don't really invest myself into church. I realize that we're all flawed. I'm not asking you to like me and, and what I've done. Your belief system ha- saying I'm evil. I get that. Right. You've been taught that I can't change that. Mm-hmm. We could talk all night and cry together. You're still going to think. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. So let's get off of that and say, look, this is what I've decided to do for myself. This is my authentic life. When I, I, I hear them say, oh, my God, you're such a nice person. I didn't know you were a trans woman of color. I thought you were a woman. Uh-huh. And then I say, let's forget that. I'm accountable only to God. You account to God for who you are. We're both busy. And let's just love each other and respect each other. And most people are like, I can agree to that.
2: So how did your transition go within the context of the black community? What was that
0: like? I'm shunned. The day I announced I was transgender, not just from the black community, but I was a executive hanging out with um, five black guys, one Puerto Rican, and we all were making uh, almost three digits eating lunches at each other's house, having brunch parties. Mm -hmm. We were really close, in my mind, as friends. Once I announced that I was a a trans woman and was taking hormones, not only did I lose my natural family, my church family, I lost my gay family. So so not only was the stigma in the church and the black community, but the black gay community back in the late 90s, looked at me like, you're a professional gay male, black, you doing well, why would you even think to do something like this to yourself? We think you're making a very big mistake with your life. And we as a group, we have to tell you this. And uh, as time went on, that the calls came less and less, then the invitations dropped, and mm-hmm. I was pretty much dropped from a group of, of men that I'd been friends with maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, so it sounds like that there's a lot of transphobia within, I mean, I I guess we could say... The black
0: community as a whole.
2: Why do you think that is, first?
0: You know, being gay, being lesbian, there's no body transitioning. You can be gay and hide that all day. Um, When it comes to transgender, it's about gender, not sex. We're the only one in the LGBT that is specifically about gender, physical appearance, where if you're gay, you might work your body, you might get muscles, you might cut your hair. But you're not doing really major transformations visible to the public to state that I'm changing gender. And I think that's where the the phobia lies. So it, I, I think, you know, we've been put into a group um. We're partly a member of, but um, I don't date gay men. I, I, I've been married to a straight man. He, he doesn't like men.
2: In your community, was there a sense that you you were created a black man and, and you should stay that way and not try to be a woman? I mean, was there... Are, are... God made you a
0: black man in the mm-hmm. black community as a leader. Mm-hmm. The church, the Bible says, the man is, a, is the leader of the home. A wife should submit to her husband. My mother allowed my father to be the leader. Um, They had arguments, but he was the man. She was the woman. If God wanted you to be a woman, honey, he'd have made you a woman. God don't make mistakes.
2: How did you sort that out, though? Did you ever think, oh, well, she's got a point and and maybe oh, I, I'm wrong? For 10 years
0: and I thought, oh, my God, I'm filthy. I'm already a homosexual. I'm I'm already already living in a world of sin. But now I'm transgender. I've taken on a whole mental aspect. That now the devil's not only controlling my body, but my mind. Mm -hmm. And she says, you've just been completely taken over.
2: How did you get beyond that? It took
0: me maybe 10, 11 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, after living as a gay man, dressing as a cross dresser, going to work as a man in the evenings, living as a woman, going to work as a man, living as a woman, working as a professional eight to six, living as a woman at night. I just got tired. I, I just I, my 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 whole self-esteem, my whole mentality just got to an ultimate low. And I just said one day, if I'm going to hell, I need to be happy. Uh-huh. so I just need to go all the way with who I really am and pretty much say effort and just do it. Drag queens were in the clubs at night. So here I am living as a woman in the day, looking like a drag queen, um, wearing wigs in the, in the day. And they say, this is something you do at night in the dark. You damn well don't get on the Metro looking like this with degrees from Wake Forest. This is my black gay friends. This is just unacceptable. You know better. We party with these people in the club at night. We damn well don't invite them to brunch in the daytime (laughs) at one of our fancier restaurants because that's just not what we do. To an educated group of people, it looks extremely crazy.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it was very taboo within the culture
0: that you were in and yeah all the black community was like listen it's th- the gay thing is just coming around we're beginning to get some traction gays and lesbians are still trying to get power in the late 90s early two you're just going way too far with this stuff honey yeah i don't know any black transgenders in 1999 that was working a professional job at starbucks or running a bank Right. They say, what do you see this at? Blacks are working professionally, gay blacks. We're beginning to make traction. Now you go going to a group that is, they have no economic power. They have no recognition.
2: Yeah, I ran into that too, you know, that, that the lesbian and gay community would, you know, we were we were setting them back. By being transgender, we were just a little too strange. And so we were somehow hurting too their wig. cause. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why are you
0: coming to the rally <laughs> in, in your in, in your wig? Yeah. You look a mess. We're really yeah. trying to get things done here today. We're fighting for equality. We're raising money. This is this, this is no time for for cross-dressing. Yeah.
2: So wh- what kinds of experiences did you have? I mean, when you were when you were dressed and you were you and trans woman of color and you were, you know, out in the day uh, living your life, did you did you have negative experiences
0: Back in the 90s and early 2000, I mean, I held my pocketbook close on the New York subway. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would come up, no matter if I sat in the back, put a, a head on and a wig, I mean, and some glasses, sunglasses. You know, somebody would come over and, oh, my God, look at this. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm working, you know, once I lost all my health insurance and I left my employer, Mm -hmm. lost my apartment. I'm out on the streets with transgender women of color. They don't have high school diplomas, high rate of hepatitis and syphilis. Some even at that point have AIDS and HIV. And these are my my new family. Mm hmm. I'm interviewing ten times a week, going in as a, a a trans woman with the wig on. We're looking for Tony Newman from Wake Forest. Hi, my name is Tony Newman from Wake Forest. I know someone at Wake Forest, and this is not the Tony Newman they told me about. Well, I'm I'm a trans person. You're what, honey? You're transvestite? That's not appropriate here, sweetie. Now, if you want to come back dressed as the the real Tony Newman, we can have a real interview. Right. But we're not going to have an interview today with this madness that you got on here. You and I both know we're both educated folks. This is insanity here.
5: Mm -hmm.
0: So I leave. And after about 100 interviews, I stop and say that they're not ready for this. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ready for this. The black employer, the white employer, the brown employer. No one is ready for me. So I have to hustle and do what I have to do. Never been a street person, never had to worry about hunger, finding a roof over my head, struggling, fighting for survival. But then I went into that mode. And here I am in my late 20s. I'm just learning how to how to handle the streets, how to handle being a trans person. And no one likes me except men at night who likes what I am for sexual purposes. Right. They're the only ones who would speak to me after dark. So there there you go. Well,
2: and and so when did that begin to change? And I'm wondering if you feel like because I've always said as a transgender man, it's much easier
0: for me in the world than it is for a transgender woman. Yeah, you went from what they call the subgender to the power gender. I went from the power gender to the subgender. Right. Women are considered less than. By Even business executives who I do business with, they think women are less than. Some of the same people I dealt with as a man, I went back uh, maybe a reunion at Wake Forest and saw a professor or something. The treatment I got as Tony, even even an effeminate Tony, was so much better than I get as the trans Tony.
2: Tony, do you have a relationship with your family now?
0: (laughs) I went home for a family reunion Mm -hmm. first time in 20 years.
2: Oh, wow. How did that go?
0: Went lovely Went lovely They were like oh my god you don't look as crazy As you did when we saw you (laughs) 20 years ago I'm more happy I'm less nervous I'm more confident I exude that And people respond to that Yes. 20 years ago I felt inferior I felt shame I felt fighting with God Fighting with them Arguing Mm -hmm. none of that occurred I came in very happy I came in with a black male who's very happy it was a beautiful five days. Beautiful. Yeah.
2: Oh, beautiful that's. I love that. I'm so happy that that uh, that it went the way it did. That's fantastic.
0: It went great. It went yeah. great.
2: That was Tony Newman. Her book is called "I Rise: The Transformation of Tony Newman."
1: More in a minute. This is Trans in the Eyes of God, a special series from Inspired. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed Welcome back to Trans in the Eyes of God, a special series from Inspired. Here's Rev. David Wynn, your guest host for the series.
2: Let's move now from one person's story and take a look at the bigger picture. How religious beliefs are influencing our cultural conversation on transgender individuals' rights and place in society. Bathroom bills, transgender military service, gender-neutral pronouns, they are sparking fierce debates all over the country. So where are all the fireworks coming from?
4: I think it's a question of identity.
2: Emma Green is a staff writer for The Atlantic. She says the trans rights movement is getting so much attention right now because it taps into the national conversation around a very modern notion of the self.
4: In certain liberal academic worlds, the language of identity being something constructed and self-determined and malleable and multiple is really second nature. If you went onto any college campus, you would probably find hundreds of thousands of college students learning exactly this vocabulary, speaking in these words as they talked about themselves in protests and in the public square.
2: And truly, it's a conversation not everyone wants to participate in.
4: For a lot of Americans, and particularly perhaps some of the older Americans who weren't exposed to that milieu, people who have conservative beliefs, this idea that identity is the most core thing and is also self-determined and completely malleable is kind of crazy because it stands counter to this notion that we were created by God in the case of religious people's beliefs, and we are who we are. It isn't the thing that we need to be pulling apart or looking at uh, persistently as the central part of our being.
6: I do think on a number of levels, we're facing kind of an identity crisis in the culture.
2: Robert P. Jones is the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute
6: you know, everything from what does it mean to be American to what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? I mean, these are fundamental questions. And I think for many older Americans in particular, questions that it's bewildering to have to answer. And I think it is just because um, we're at a place where the old assumptions, I think that's the real key, the old assumptions that kind of held a general, and it really was a kind of waspy American center together, Mm. have sort of dissipated. And so now – All these things could just be assumed now actually have to be talked about and argued about.
2: Argued about and legislated about. Mississippi made the unusual decision to legally define male and female.
4: So in this bill, which has now become a law, the Mississippi State Legislature defined male, and in parentheses they wrote man, or female, and in parentheses woman, refer to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at the time of birth.
2: Emma, why do you feel Mississippi felt the need to spell that out legally?
4: Mississippi is one of a number of states that have been engaging on this issue. Texas is one of those states. North Carolina is another. And Mississippi has a very conservative state legislature. And right now, this law goes farther than basically any other that's on the books in the United States.
2: When you kind of peel it back, uh, was there something that precipitated them kind of making this definition? Or uh, can you tell us a little more about what's going on?
4: When Mississippi wrote out a specific definition in its bill about gender identity, it was Codifying something that had previously just stood as a given. There was no reason to put into law what makes a man and what makes a woman. But in these times when the question of manness and womanness is highly contested, when those categories are being mixed up, there are groups that are fighting to have, for example, a third gender listed on driver's licenses and passports. When all of these previously just regular default categories are being mixed up, there is only really one way to fight back against that, or at least in the eyes of legislators, there's one tool that's available to them, and that's by encoding it into state or federal law. This is part of a broader national trend, and Mississippi, being a very conservative state, fits very snugly into the set of states that have been taking up this issue as a sort of a question that everybody is, uh, has on their mind.
2: Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, So, Robbie, I I wanted to bring you in on the conversation. And um, why is America so anxious about gender right now? I mean, this is a topic that we typically traditionally haven't had a lot of conversation about. And now it seems like it's all we talk about.
6: What, what has happened, I think, the, in the country is that attitudes have changed very, very quickly around same-sex marriage and this whole set of questions about, you know, the nature of sexuality, the nature of gender, and what the relationship is between, like, biological sex and gender identity. But it's worth noting just how quickly this has changed. So if we just go back to, like, 2008, only 4 in 10 Americans supported same-sex marriage. That number, uh, by the time we were at the end of 2016, had gone to 6 in 10. In 2017, it's two thirds of Americans who support same sex marriage. So that's a sweeping amount of change in a short amount of time. And I think there's no overestimating um, the effect that the uh, 2015 Obergefell Supreme Court decision had that legalized same sex marriage in all 50 states. Where especially in states like Mississippi, where um, it really is only about three in ten Mississippians who support uh, same-sex marriage, so they're in a very different place than the country as a whole. So, you know, I think what's happening here is that there's kind of a, a coming national consensus on these issues, and certainly support for. Uh, Same sex marriage, and for generally speaking, um, non discrimination laws, generally speaking. But in states like Mississippi mm-hmm. and in the Deep South that are out of step with that, culturally speaking, at the local level, um, there are these um, legal attempts to kind of carve out spaces where um, the, you know, kind of interests of people who disagree with the kind of national uh, federal law can still refuse to uh, participate in something that they have a, a religious objection to.
2: Right. So, Emma, in in your work, because I know you've written, you know, quite a bit about the anxiety around um, between religion, certain religions, and and gender identity. Are you, are you seeing uh, similar things?
4: Certainly the rapidity of this shift, which is something that Robbie alluded to, has been striking. And this is not just in the three years that have gone by since the same-sex marriage decision came down from the Supreme Court. This is the broader shift that's often described by conservative religious Americans as the sexual revolution and its after effects that seems to have orchestrated this turning of the ship that Robbie is describing. But one thing that I often try to pay attention to in my reporting is the way that the turning of the ship, which is generally a correct way to describe what's happening in America, can obscure people who feel very much left behind by where the culture is going. Part of the furor that we've seen in North Carolina, in Texas, and to a lesser degree in states like Mississippi over issues having to do with sexuality and gender identity is this anxiety that I think a small but vocal population of Americans feel, feeling that their culture that they used to recognize, that they used to think was as simple as boys are boys and girls are girls, kind of leaving them behind Mm -hmm. and not knowing how to make sense of that.
2: It's been interesting. You know, we're kind of in the midst of of being part of a conversation, this, this new conversation around gender identity and religion specifically. One of the things I've noticed is that there definitely does seem to be this line that's drawn between the idea that your gender is set at birth, you know, it's it's anatomical, it's physiological, it's, you know, created, uh, if it's somebody who uh, is religious uh, in some way, and then... You've got another discussion happening around identity being more complicated than that, being something that we come to based on, you know, our own personal feelings and self-expression and it being uh, something that can be fluid. Do you see that distinction when you're talking with people? And uh, Emma, if you'd like to go first.
4: I see this in multiple different religious communities, not just among the conservative evangelicals, but even, for example, among traditional Jews. There are notions Mm -hmm. that are baked into these religious traditions about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and to contest the boundaries of that or suggest that those categories aren't very good or perhaps aren't really useful at all or can be, uh, mixed with, messed with and mixed up and, um, sort of made to fit a person's identity uh, can be deeply challenging. One example of this was a story that I reported a couple of springs ago about young Jews who had made a return to Orthodox Judaism, exploring the sets of traditions and teachings that they now embraced as their own. And one woman who I interviewed talked about the mandate on women in Orthodox Judaism to burn braid and bathe, meaning they light the Shabbat candles, uh, they braid and bake uh, the challah, and they take a little bit of the challah and throw it away, and then they bathe after having their period in the mikvah, or the ritual bath. This is very much not only about how this young woman understood herself as a Jew, but also how she understood herself as a woman, and as God made her and commanded her to do certain things based on her gender. This kind of language and aspect of identity that's deeply based into religion religious texts and into people's understandings of themselves in relationship to God is something that I see across religious traditions, even those traditions that tend to be more open-minded about uh, sexuality or issues of gender identity.
6: Yeah, you know, I, I think that's uh, – I want to follow on with what uh, Emma was talking about, and particularly uh, two things I would like to bring up. One is um, that you- – Part of the issue here is that we're wrestling with very old texts, right? They're thousands of years old, and, you know, in the case of uh, the Hebrew texts, and we're trying to sort out what out of those texts is normative and prescriptive and what out of those texts was part of the cultural context of the time and maybe doesn't have to carry over in a prescriptive way uh, forward? Those are all really naughty theological conversations to have and, and religious communities have to wrestle with them. I do think it's worth being respectful of those, of that wrestling um, and that that's a serious conversation uh, to be had. I think one of the real challenges is uh, how, how do religious traditions that have these kind of norms and they have um – uh, certain understandings of male and female but but even how do they deal with the actual biological messiness on the ground because even biology is fairly messy uh, when you get right mm-hmm. down to it right I mean there are um, you know babies born every year uh, where the biological sex doesn't match the chromosomal um, identity of the child and then, there, right. then there's yeah. a decision that has to be made right when there's that kind of mm-hmm. um, conflict uh, between uh, yeah chromosomes and, and genitalia um, there are people born with multiple, uh, with both male and female genitalia, right, and then what? Then yes, um, and so right. I, I think um, when we get down to these, really, um, you know, that biology itself isn't quite, I think, as, as immutable as it's often assumed uh, to be, um, and and then the questions become uh i think much much more difficult and they become uh more questions of uh, of reflection than a straight deduction from biology right i think that line of of reasoning doesn't really stand up to to scrutiny at the end of the day so natural what's often called natural theology that sort of moves from kind of biology to norms i think always has to wrestle with just like how malleable the things that often look immutable, if you just glance at them, but you, but if you really start paying attention to them, you know there is variation even the even in the biology, and so any natural theology I think is going to have to take into account
2: that uh, set of issues as well. So so what do you predict for how this is going to go? How will the way that religion impacts? This discussion around gender diversity uh, more for or change or transform?
4: I always try to keep the policy of not pontificating because I've learned as a journalist that <laughs> pontification often yeah. ends you up in hot water. <laughs> But I will say this. One thing that has stuck out from my reporting over time is the degree of difference in different circles that I report on in the perception of where we stand on this question of gender and sexuality. In liberal worlds, coastal worlds, urban worlds, there's often the assumption that the uh, same-sex marriage issue certainly is resolved and over, that LGBT rights and the march towards sort of progress and justice for those Americans is all but guaranteed. Uh, Perhaps, in their view, the Trump administration might be setbacks, but ultimately, the arc Mm -hmm. of history will bend towards what they see as a form of justice for LGBT people. But when you Mm -hmm. enter into more conservative religious circles, these are the evangelicals Rabia was talking about, but across different religious groups, some of the rhetoric actually gets flipped. Uh, There are comparisons that those groups will make between themselves and abolitionists or people fighting for other causes of Mm -hmm. justice, like the civil rights movement. And that perception Mm -hmm. difference, the gap there, is really striking to me and suggests that this issue is not resolved and is going to continue to be a major feature of American discourse for a very long time. This is not only in terms of court cases and Supreme Court decisions, but also in terms of the legislation that we are already seeing on the ground popping up in more and more states. It's about cultural perceptions. It's about the rhetoric that's used on television networks and in media publications, there's a lot that's still brewing here, and it is absolutely not a resolved and set-aside issue that we can just afford to ignore.
1: Well, for all of our lives, we've lived in a world of boys and girls, but that is changing along with everything else in 2017.
3: Lightning-rod legislation is sparking an emotional debate in Texas. The state Senate committee heard 10 hours of testimony Friday on a so-called bathroom bill, hearing mostly... Are you a woman? Um, yes. For all intents and purposes, I am a woman. And that's very hard... For Bruce Jenner to say, "Quote: When Joe started with the makeup, it made me uncomfortable. It made my
1: husband uncomfortable. Then it made Joe feel uncomfortable."
5: I would absolutely refuse to refer to th- this woman here, who's clearly a woman, as a they, because for me that would be imposing an ideological, How is political she clearly a woman? system. Because she is. If everybody watching this program can see that she is a woman. By you saying that you refuse to use my pronouns or
4: refer to me as the gender that I am, it's one of the grossest acts of disrespect that I'm forced to go on.
5: Thank you.
2: So cultural awareness of trans issues is growing, and it's happening against a backdrop of dramatically changing attitudes toward the broader gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans community. How dramatically are views shifting, and how is this impacting faith traditions? To find out, let's go back a few years to 2014. Interfaith Voices talked with Kevin Ekstrom, former editor-in-chief of Religion News Service, about how religions in America at that time were trying to come to terms with the LGBT movement as a whole, much less trans rights.
7: You know, you may see small incremental changes around the edges, but I think, you know, the Catholics, the Southern Baptists, the Mormons, they're not going to change their position. I think most of the mainline churches that are able to change their position probably already have. So I think we're looking at a bit of a stalemate in some ways, but what all religious groups are going to have to figure out is how they're going to exist in this new atmosphere that we're living in, you know, where people can get civilly married and they're going to come to their pastor or their rabbi, or maybe even their imam. And they're going to present themselves for or nation, or baptism, or they want to be a Sunday school teacher, or whatever. And the churches are going to have to figure out how they manage that coexistence. So we talk about LGBT, right? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And I think a lot of churches have kind of come to terms with the L and the G part of that equation. But the bisexual and transgender pieces of that puzzle have been harder for churches to figure out there's new resources coming out on the the issue of bisexuality but on the transgender front there's been a lot less movement and a lot more uh, discomfort I think people have a hard time wrapping their minds around the whole transgender issue
2: that's because lesbian gay and bisexual are all sexual orientations which describe who someone is attracted to but being transgender it's not about who you like it's about who you are And that idea that someone's gender identity may not match up with their biological sex, as Ekstrom said, is a concept many Americans are still working through. Fast forward and the Public Religion Research Institute released a new report, Emerging Consensus on LGBT Issues, Findings from the 2017 American Values Atlas. Now, the report does not examine whether religious institutions have necessarily shifted their doctrinal positions, and as Ekstrom indicated, many have not. But it does look at the people who make up those congregations, and there we find a different story. The report asks whether a person supports gay and lesbian couples being able to legally marry. And PRRI's Associate Director of Research, Rob Griffin, says attitudes have changed dramatically among the general U.S. public and
8: people of faith. ground has shifted under our feet on issues relating to the LGBT community, probably more than almost any issue that I've ever sort of studied. We're really talking about something going from a majority opposing same-sex marriage to a majority supporting it within the span of the last 10 years. Right now, uh, it's probably just about 60-30. So 60% uh, support for legal same-sex marriage and roundabouts of 30% uh, oppose. If you take, you know, people by their sort of self-identified religious category, along with maybe some other relevant demographic factors, right, so like racial category, what you tend to find is that there are sort of really wide divides uh, between how people sort of feel about this issue. White evangelical Protestants, the majority do not support it. Mormons, the majority do not support it. But, you know, once we start talking about Catholics of either sort of a white or Hispanic background, um, white mainline Protestants, Jewish, the unaffiliated, these groups, sort of sometimes support and sometimes very strongly support in the case of the unaffiliated same-sex marriage. Now, that said, it is also the case that we're seeing movement among everyone, right? So sometimes when we see movement in public opinion, it's because one group has shifted uh, and sometimes rather dramatically. In this case, it's pretty much everybody shifting at the same time. So they're starting from different levels of support, right? If we go back even like three years, but everybody's moving. It's typically the people who are at the lowest end of support who are actually moving the most. So just as an example, Mormons between 2014 and 2017 saw 13. percent increase uh, in their support for same-sex marriage. And there's probably two things happening there because, some you know, people ask about this. Part of the story is generational. Um, that is to say that there are people who are younger who feel of, among almost every demographic group and cut you can imagine that feel differently than those 65 and up. So there's just a clear difference between younger and older Americans. On top of that, however, though, you do see individuals within groups sort of shifting. So it's not just that you've got young 18 to 29-year-olds replacing people who are a little bit older and that, therefore changing attitudes. It's also the case that people who are 65 and up are also shifting. Um, it's people who did oppose it at some point in time and are now supporting it. Both of these things are happening.
2: However, Griffin says while same-sex marriage support isn't a bad proxy to measure attitudes about trans people... He warns about jumping to conclusions.
8: I think we also want to be careful um, that, you know, some of the the, the feelings sometimes about the gay and lesbian community uh, and even the bisexual community is very sometimes different than it is for the trans community.
2: So it bears repeating, a positive shift in attitudes towards the L, the G, and the B doesn't necessarily mean a positive shift in attitudes or feelings about the T, transgender individuals. The PRRI report also examined whether people support or oppose religiously-based refusal of services, as in a small business owner refusing services to the LGBT community due to their religious beliefs. And what PRRI found was consistency. Griffin says people who are likely to support same-sex marriage are also likely to oppose policies. That allow people to refuse to serve lgbt individuals because of their
8: religious objections we see pretty similar numbers actually for religiously based refusals um, that is to say that um, you know if you take how people feel about same-sex marriage you actually see for americans as a whole about the same numbers about that 60 30 number coming out sort of opposing any sort of refusal for religiously based sort of reasons uh, and 30 percent favoring it um now Just to sort of talk, I think, sometimes about the specifics of it, that does change a little bit when you change the question wording from talking about just basic business refusals, right, which could be like housing and your mechanic, to when you start talking about wedding-specific stuff, catering, people doing flowers, people doing cakes, things of that nature. If you question people about that, it shifts just a little bit. A majority of Americans still oppose religiously-based refusals, but it's only about 53% versus, let's say, 60%. There is something about the industry around wedding, you know, that people have a slightly different point of reference for that than they do, again, maybe like housing or, you know, a mechanic or if you're just going to go get oranges at the grocery store or something, that there's a, there's a different sort of dimension of the American public that we're sort of tapping into by asking them specifically about those services.
2: And when it comes to views on laws protecting LGBT individuals from discrimination in, for instance, housing or jobs... Griffin says Americans are, for the most part, supportive.
8: But There's also, I think, some unlikely supporters as well, given some of the descriptions we were doing before. So, again, if you want to talk about sometimes the most conservative religious groups in the United States, white evangelical Protestants, Mormons, they're usually sort of in the mix. Mormons in particular, though, are more supportive of protections than you would think otherwise, given how they feel about same-sex marriage. And some of this has to do with their own religious history of persecution. uh, And that when they're asked about these types of protections, they tend to be a little bit more supportive than uh, people uh, would often assume. Still,
2: as Griffin mentioned before, these changing views are about the broader LGBT community, not focused in on specific support for transgender individuals.
1: This is Trans in the Eyes of God, a special series from Inspired. Stay with us. Welcome back to Trans in the Eyes of God, a special series from Inspired. In this episode, we hear from trans individuals navigating their beliefs to find a spiritual home. Let's get back to our guest host, Rev. David Wynn.
2: We also invited scholars and religious leaders from different traditions to share their interpretations of Scripture and doctrine. To answer the question, is it okay to be trans
3: in the eyes of God? I get asked this kind of thing all the time, like, just tell me, am I right or wrong? Tell me, am I going to hell or not? And I'm like, I can't tell you that. If you don't know that for yourself, why, what am I supposed to tell you? That's Emory University professor
2: Scott Kugel. He studies South Asian culture and Islam, and he's echoing a common theme we heard. Faith traditions aren't monoliths. Even among religions with a central authority, there are multiple, often conflicting interpretations of doctrine and how that's lived out. Which means that among Muslims, among Jews, among Buddhists, there are different views about the trans experience, depending on what branch of the tradition you follow, or what country you live in, or even which specific congregation you attend.
3: That's why I'm
2: I'm having a bit of a difficulty answering your question. So where do we go from here? Well, in the few minutes we have left in this first episode, I thought I'd give you a taste of what emerging voices from different religions have to say about gender identity. Here's a sampling of views. From the idea that gender is fixed, to gender is fluid, to gender is secondary to how one lives.
3: Well, the starting point for the Christian worldview is scripture. And the starting point for that is is in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 where you see that there is a creator, God, who made everything and the purpose for everything is basically inscribed in those first few pages of the Old Testament scriptures. And so in the very beginning we believe that God created the heavens and the earth and on the sixth day he created male and female. What you have in the culture today is basically you are what you think you are you're not what your body says that you are the christian point of view kind of begins with biological sex and says no really your identity is revealed in male and female bodies
1: the gods and goddesses change their gender and and humans uh, also change their gender visually there's an availability of the idea that the divine is both male and female and switches, that it's fluid that maleness and femaleness is fluid even in the
3: divine so certainly
1: in the rest of creation it is uh,
3: so my position is that God, Allah is the best of creators and that everything that Allah creates has a purpose and that goal and purpose is not always clear from the outside. So for instance, the prophet Muhammad has a teaching, it's in a hadith report, that says, God does not look at your bodies and your actions. God looks at your heart and your intention. And that, I think, is a really liberating thought for transgender Muslims.
2: Judaism likes to organize things. A friend of mine says that Judaism believes in an obsessive-compulsive God, which is definitely true. But Judaism also always has an awareness of places in between. That was Denny Burke on Evangelical Christianity, Ruth Vanita on Hinduism, Scott Kugel on Islam, and Rabbi Elliot Kugel on Judaism. We'll hear more from them, and we'll also hear stories from people on the ground. Trans people of faith who have struggled to find acceptance, who looked at their religion to understand who they are, like Mesma Belsare.
7: Being a Hindu was
1: a benefit. I realized early on that There was really no dogma. There was no particular right or wrong way of doing things. You can hear Mesma's story in Part 3 of Trans in the Eyes of God at interfaithradio.org. This special series was made possible by a grant from the Arcus Foundation. This episode, I'm excited to share, was awarded first place by the Religion News Writers Association in the radio and podcast category in 2019 and originally broadcast in July of 2018. This episode, originally produced by Laura Quarrell, with support from Stephanie Lecce, Melissa Fato, June Owens, Lewis Wallace, and Ruth Morris. A special thanks to our guest host, Reverend David Wynn, and Maureen Fiedler, our founder. We'll leave you with some music from the Florida-based punk rock band Against Me. In 2012, their lead singer, Laura Jane Grace, made history, coming out as a trans woman on the cover of Rolling Stones. Their sixth album, Transgender Dysphoria Blues, released in 2014, received critical acclaim from fans and critics. The songs and lyrics wrestled with themes we hear throughout this special series. Love, belonging, vulnerability, and identity. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe and stay connected. I'll see you next week.